Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Isn't it extraordinary that uh, three years on, the shadow of COVID still looms large? For instance, there are concerns with the spread of the virus in China. Uh, There is a new and very worrisome COVID variant, the XBB.1.5. It is the most immunity evasive variant to date, and currently there are no accessible therapies to treat it. In Australia, the economic impact from COVID is hitting the construction sector hard and fast. We've read about that in the news. Construction companies are being wound up or they have uh, collapsed completely, owing millions of dollars and leaving scores of partially built homes. Think of the distress this is causing on people who've lost their jobs. Think of the distress uh, of uh, homeowners whose dreams are in complete tatters uh, with uh, partially built houses, suffering financially, bleeding financially, servicing a loan for a house that they cannot move into. Uh, My heart breaks for them. According to a scientific brief released by the World Health Organization in March 2022, it reported that just in the first year of the COVID pandemic, global prevalence of anxiety and depression rose by a massive 25%, with youth and women most affected. A major contributing to the rise is the unprecedented stress caused by social isolation resulting from the pandemic. Link uh, with this were constraints on people's ability to work, seek support uh, from loved ones, engage and engage in their communities. Loneliness, fear of infection, suffering and death for oneself and for others, uh, for loved ones. Grief after bereavement and financial worries have all been cited as stressors leading to increased anxiety and depression. When you throw into the mix the military conflict between Russia and Ukraine that's been going on for nearly 12 months now, skyrocketing interest rates, soaring cost of living, social ills, personal issues, and other things that are outside of our control, there is a lot of anxiety and uncertainty out there. But I'm not sharing anything earth-shattering, am I? Living with uncertainties uh, is unavoidable in life. You can say the only thing that is certain is uncertainty itself. Very little about our world, very little about, about our lives stay constant. No matter how well we plan our lives, and there's nothing wrong with planning, we can't control everything that happens to us. Our future is really an unknown. To think otherwise is simply being delusional. And it is the not knowing, it is the uncertainty that exhausts us, that distresses us, that depresses us. Research tells us that we actually feel better about preparing for a bad outcome than not having a clue about where we will end up. That we cope with preparing for a bad outcome better than not knowing what the future holds. Now, after telling his disciples of his impending betrayal and death, Jesus comforts his disciples. And you can imagine they are in great distress, in shock, in fear, and in 
and anxiety about their uncertain future. Jesus reassures them that he will remain with them. I love that word in John chapter 14. I will not leave you as orphans. I will be with you through the presence of the Holy Spirit, working out God's purposes in and through them. And then he concludes with these words in John 16, verse 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. I've told you these things so that in me your peace, the peace that I have given you, stays intact. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of our uncertain future that will inevitably include trials and sorrows, we can have certainty of God's peace that comes through the growing knowledge of God's character and deeds. He is our true North Star. He is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Lord would say to each one of us this morning, in the midst of your uncertainties, I am your certainty. In the midst of your uncertainties, I am your certainty. In Mark eleven twenty two, Jesus puts it this way. He said to his disciples, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Our church theme last year and this year. I love that picture. I believe, I honestly believe, truly believe, maybe I could be reading too much into it, but I believe that God uh, led me to this picture. Uh, last year we used a different picture, and I thought, no, this year we'll use another one, and I really didn't know where to start. Uh, what, would, what, would it, what would the image be to capture Mark eleven twenty two? Um, lots of photos, right? And uh, it didn't take long, actually. I don't know how I even came to this picture. I bought the copyright for it so that we can distribute it freely. Uh, a father's hand and then a baby's hand, hand, finger hanging on. Meditate on it, won't you? Take some time, and uh, we're going to do that, by the way, give you the heads up at our members' meeting. That is what we're going to do. We're going to reflect on that picture. We're going to ask God to speak to us through that picture. But our trust, our faith in God, is front and center of our relationship with him. It explains why the only time Jesus reacted in amazement of people was in, re was in response to their faith or lack of faith in God. Growing in our certainty that God is who he says he is. Growing in our certainty in what he has done, growing in our certainty in what he will do, growing in our certainty what he has promised to do is what gives us peace when we face uncertainties in life. Indeed, this was the precise reason why Luke, after much careful research, decided to write his gospel, his orderly account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for a guy by the name of Theophilus, probably a young, rich Christian who needed to be reassured of the truth of the gospel. And this is how Luke begins his gospel 
written for Theophilus, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I, ha- I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And this is why we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke from chapters 1 to 12 last year, and we're going to complete the rest of the Gospel of Luke this year starting today, and it will take us right up to the end of July. The passage we're going to look at this morning, which is unique to Luke, is from chapter 13, 1 to 9. it's up on the on the slide. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Of those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for the fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. First, a brief look at the setting of the passage. The story takes place during the phase of Jesus' life and ministry referred to by some Bible commentators as Luke's travel, uh, Luke's travel narrative, starting from chapters 9, verse 51, all the way to 1947. It's the longest part of, the, of, uh, longest part of Luke's gospel. The content is mostly about discipleship and unique to Luke. You'll also see Luke emphasizing repeatedly Jesus' resolve in going to Jerusalem to take upon himself on the cross our sins in order to restore our broken relationship with God. In Luke 13, uh, 22, then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. In Luke 17, 11, now on his way, to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. In Luke 18, 31 to 33 reads, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. And finally, in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. 
I hope we see God's love coming through very clearly in these verses. I think that's what Luke was trying to capture. Jesus, it's going to be rough. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hellish for Jesus, but Jesus is committed to his mission, dying on the cross for our sins. He is going to Jerusalem, not to a reception, but to his execution. Now to the passage itself. We have Jesus being asked to give his theological views on a tragic incident. It involves an unspecified number of Galileans who were preparing, who were either preparing to or were offering their sacrifice to God, uh, mostly, uh, most likely at the Passover in Jerusalem. Pilate, uh, the Roman governor of Judea, had them killed, had them murdered. No reasons are given. The act is absolutely shocking. And just to, just to give us perspective, it would be akin to the Queensland Premier ordering the police to come into our church to shoot us dead while we're celebrating communion with our blood mingle with the cup. Yeah, you get the picture. It was, it was a horrific, horrific incident. Philo, a Jewish scholar from Alexandria, writing only seven years later after Pilate concluded his tenure in AD 36, described Pilate as a man of inflexible disposition, very merciless, very obstinate, very corrupt, and very cruel, guilty of continual murders of people untried and uncondemned in the most grievous uh, inhumanity. Furthermore, it would seem Pilate loved stirring up the Jews into public protests so that he could have an excuse to unleash his soldiers with brute force on them. That's Pilate for you. Jesus then voluntarily brings up another incident, a tower in Siloam and collapsed and killed 18 people. Jesus, by way of uh, by way of a question, exposes a common and typical Jewish conclusion about why bad things happen to bad people. And it is this, that calamities are always, always God's judgment on sin. That was their worldview. If something bad happens to you, aha, you must have been a terrible person. You must have done something bad because that is God's judgment on you. And this means that the absence of tragedies in, in their life is a sign of God's approval and favor. And Jesus dispels that notion emphatically. He says to them, and it may shock us, I tell you, no. Unless you repent, unless you turn to God, you too will all perish. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. And he says it twice. Jesus' point is that their assumptions, and if we think that way, our assumptions are very flawed. The manner in which a person dies is not an accurate th thermometer on whether they're worse sinners than anybody else at all. The truth is, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. In other words, there is a more dreadful thing that is yet to occur, and that is the certainty of, of God's judgment upon all unrepentant sinners. 
In Hebrews 9.24, we're told, just as people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. Jesus was telling the crowd, it is not the first death you need to preoccupy yourselves with, but the second one, because a terminal fate with even greater consequences await for those who do not turn to God in repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. Very strong words, very clear words, even in the Greek. Unless you perish, you will all likewise, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Immediately after, Jesus tells a parable about the fate of an unfruitful fig tree that is very context-specific. It is similar to the account of Jesus cursing the fig tree in Matthew 21 and, of course, in Mark 11. The fig tree is a reference to Israel, the people, the nation, who despite God's persistent, continuous overtures of love and grace, the nation is still barren, meaning the nation and its people are still unrepentant of her wayward and defiant ways. The devotion to God is nothing more than lip service and attempts at self-justification. It's all a facade, their holiness, their worship, their religiosity was just a facade. The hearts were far from God. You see, fig trees bear fruit annually. But in this parable, Jesus said that this, parable, that this fruit tree had not done so for three years. And although the owner is within his right to cut it down, he will persevere with this unfruitful fig tree for a little while longer. The parable is a graphic picture showing God's displeasure and patience at the same time. God's displeasure and patience at the same time. God will delay his judgment to give everyone myriads of opportunity to repent and turn to him for forgiveness and salvation. But that opportunity is for a limited time only. That opportunity is for a limited time only. So let me make two points from the text that we just unpacked. First, the certainty of God's judgment. Jesus is very clear about this, that God's judgment is a certainty. We don't like thinking about it, much less talking about it. It is one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. We're conflicted on the inside. Maybe it's because we know people who are living godless lives, and the notion that they would face judgment troubles us considerably. All the rapists, the pedos, that, that's a, we're okay with that. But many of our friends, they're, they're nice people, right? Good people. They do good in the community. They, 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 they're not rapists. They're, they're not thieves. Yeah, we, they're imperfect, obviously, but, but the, the notion that if they don't have Jesus in their lives and that they could be facing judgment troubles us considerably because that's what Jesus says. Unless these nice friends of yours repent, unless these nice family members of yours repent, doesn't matter how nice they are, but unless they repent and turn to God for his grace and mercy, 
they will all likewise perish. Can a God of love be a God of judgment simultaneously? Can he? Many assume that God loves so much that he cannot possibly be angry at evil. Well, Jesus' words refute this notion emphatically. As Christians, we cannot ignore the doctrine of God's divine judgment. But equally, let me make this clear as well and stress this clear as well. When we speak of God's judgment, we must do so with love, with compassion and tears. Otherwise, we're misrepresenting God's character. It shouldn't be something that comes out of my, our mouths casually. You're under God's judgment. We just can't be blasé. We just can't say it casually. It is a serious thing to come under the judgment of God, the scripture tells us. God's judgment, as with his anger, is righteous and appropriate. We mustn't confuse God's anger with human anger. And I think that's the problem right there. Human anger is typically self-centered, prone to explosions of temper. When we don't get our way, when we're overlooked, when we feel neglected, we get ticked off. In contrast, God gets angry not because he's petty. God gets angry not because he's a bully or because he didn't get his way. He gets angry because sin always destroys. God loves us, and he hates what destroys us. But as Max Locato explains, this doesn't mean that he flies into a rage or loses his temper or is emotionally unpredictable. It simply means that he loves you and hates what you become when you turn from him. Call it holy hostility. I like that. A righteous hatred of wrong. A divine disgust at the evil that destroys his children. The question is not how dare God, how dare a loving God be angry, but rather how could a loving God feel anything less? The question is not how dare a loving God be angry, but how could a loving God feel anything less? Even flawed human love sometimes is capable of righteous anger, not just despite of it, but because of it. When you see someone you love ruined by others, when you see someone you love and care for ruining themselves, you can't but get angry, right? You can't but feel angry. Rebecca Manley Pippert says it well. Think how we feel when someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. The final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his subtle opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. That is God's anger right there, beautifully captured by Rebecca. 
But we're also told by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is a reluctant judge. He doesn't want to bring judgment. When God revealed himself to Moses, one of the things he discovered about God is that he's slow to anger. He does get angry, but he's slow. He's patient with the human race, giving the human race, giving individuals opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to hear the gospel, to turn to him in repentance. Think of the parable of the unfruitful fig tree. Conclusion, the judgment of God is real and a certainty. The judgment of God is real and a certainty. Could it be that one big reason why we are apathetic about evangelism, about sharing our faith, is because we do not take seriously the certainty of God's judgment? That's a question worth pondering about. The second point I want to make from the text is that is this. Yes, God's judgment is a certainty, but thanks be to God, he offers us some good news. Just as God's judgment is inevitable, so is the certainty of our deliverance from his judgment through Jesus. It wasn't that long ago uh, that Sue and I loaned someone some money. It was a significant amount. Uh, this person was in a bit of financial difficulty. When we found out the extent of his debt, we were staggered and thought there is no way he could repay his debt. We're going to have to see that money go down the drain. There's no way he could pay his back. There were really three options before us. The first was to insist that this guy repays his debt to us, the full amount, or in or in installments. The second was for us to forgive him of his debt to us. The third was to ask him to repay a portion of his debt. All right, three options that I could think of. It's a long story that I won't get into, but can you see in all of the three options that debt must be borne by someone, either by him or by us? That debt doesn't vanish into thin air. It doesn't just... In us forgiving him of his debt, we would, bear, we would bear the burden of the debt. We would bear the loss. When we sin against God, we are in debt to him, so to speak. We stand before him guilty. No amount of good we do can erase the sins we have committed simply because, for one, no one is ever that good enough. We can't make ourselves righteous and atone for our sins. If we're convicted of murder, good deeds are irrelevant to the judge. You must be punished. You do the crime, you do the time. A debt of sin must be accounted for. It doesn't vanish into thin air. So what did God do? 
Remember, he's a reluctant judge. He doesn't want to pour out his judgment upon us. That's deserved. So what does he do? Unspeakable cost to himself. God offers to pay our sin debt through his son hanging at the cross. Do we understand that? Yes, salvation is a free gift available to everyone who wants it. But that gift of salvation is costly, costly, immensely costly to God. John 3, 16, verse 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But read the next line. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. There's no third status. Condemned or forgiven. There's, there's not a third status there. Well, neither. They stand condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. At the cross, where the greatest revelation of the love of God is found, we see the ultimate display and weaving of his judgment and mercy. On the cross, Jesus, who's never sinned, took upon himself God's judgment for our sin. Our debt was fully paid. We owe God nothing, as it were. In Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And we cannot emphasize this and celebrate this enough. Jesus was so willing to take upon himself our punishment for sin that he became sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I wonder if you see it, that on the cross, Jesus did not just remove the judgment of sin in exchange at the cross. He credits to us his righteousness. This even merits a bigger hallelujah. Not only is sin removed and the, judge, it's, uh, the, the, the consequence of judgment, he takes that away, and then he offers us, he gives to us, he credits to us his righteousness. In Jesus, and because of Jesus, we have absolute certainty, not only of our deliverance from God's judgment, but a certainty that we can never be more righteous in God than we already are in Christ. And that is what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table this morning. Every time we celebrate communion, we, we acknowledge the certainty of God's judgment. That's a given. But we also acknowledge the certainty of our deliverance from God's judgment because of Jesus. And until we realize that God's judgment is a certainty and real, we won't fully appreciate God's forgiveness, will we? You don't appreciate the good news until you understand how bad the bad news is. If I were to tell you I have $100 to give you, some of you go, no, I don't need it. Uh, oh, um. Save it. 
Give it to someone else who's more in need. But if I were to say to a beggar, if I were to say to someone who's homeless, who's totally broke, who's got nothing in his bank account, I have $100 for you. Hope that helps you with your grocery. Thank you. You get the picture? Until and unless we are, we're convinced about the, the doctrine of the, God's divine judgment, that we deserve it, then what Jesus has done on the cross will, will carry little weight for us. It's like, well, thank you, yeah, thanks. So the more convinced we are, the more convinced we are about our deserving of God's judgment, the more grateful we are when we come to the Lord's table, the more grateful we are by what Jesus has done, more grateful for what Jesus has done for us at the cross. So saints, this morning we have an opportunity to respond to the Lord's grace and mercy with the deepest of gratitude and heartfelt joyful thanksgiving as we eat and drink together. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.